Welcome to Shedding Light Hunting Stories Podcast, the podcast dedicated to the average Joe and their absolutely awesome hunting stories. I'm your host, Travis Williams. You're listening to episode 119. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Hope that you are having a fantastic week. I, uh, I've been changing that little word there in the middle, and now I want to apologize to anybody if last week was your first week, and you feel like I think that my guests are mediocre and their stories are mediocre, I need you to understand something, that whenever I said that, that that was applying to me. We have a running joke on this show where if I am the only person talking, that um, I make fun of myself. There's, a, there's an episode called Worst Guest Ever. That's me, okay? So... It's always good just to kind of start that way and get it out of the way because I tell you what, guys, I'm no expert. I am an average Joe doing the best that I can and just grateful for the opportunities God gives me to be in the woods, and I've had some of those opportunities recently. Before I get to that, I've got to give a shout-out to Mr. Ridge Reaper 716 He left a review over on iTunes and said, Great content with discussions with very interesting topics. Blessed to have an outdoor outlet while I work and dream of being in the woods 24-7. So thank you, Kanye. Kindly, Iron Lion 67. So, Iron Lion 67, just want to say thank you so much for leaving that five star review. Can't say thank you enough for uh, those of you that are able to do that. Really appreciate it. Guys, I want to get to our guests, but I've got to give you some turkey updates because things have been going kind of crazy since the last episode. Last episode, you need to listen to. If you didn't listen to, I got my turkey on opening day. That video is very, very close to being done, and I will be releasing that on YouTube. So excited for that. Uh, just give you an update. I went out a couple days later to uh, that new property that I acquired and got up there, didn't hear a single gobble. And for a couple days there, things were a little tough for us and the Shedding Light Boys. Um, you know, but Buddy Trav, he went out on some of his good properties and there was a lot of pressure from other hunters. We think that maybe there's an influx of hunters from COVID last year. Not sure about that entirely, but uh, definitely know that the gobbling this past week, whereas it's usually awesome, just a, week one is usually knockout. If you can get a gobble in the early morning, usually it's a done deal. Um, not the case this 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 uh, season. It seems like it was kind of shut down. Definitely after fly down uh, this week, the birds were, were silent. But uh, that all changed on Friday. Friday was a really cool hunt. Need to tell you this story. Uh, my buddy Riley. I had a tinge of guilt. A tinge of guilt for not taking Riley to the killing field on uh, day one. But in order to get rid of that guilt before it ever happened, I did get Riley on two other birds over on this other spot that we call the Saddleback. He was directly in between them. I put him in a great spot, and Trav and I went over there and killed a bird, and Riley did not. So since then, I was like, oh, man, i got to give Riley a chance. So I sent Riley out on Thursday night. I taught him how to roost birds and uh, the night before we, we the night that we found those birds. The next day was opening day. I can't talk, but you know what I'm saying. Sent Riley out Thursday night to try and roost some birds. He didn't hear a gobble. And I had this game plan in my head. A lot of times these birds will pitch down and they'll go straight down this ravine into a creek bottom onto another property that we cannot hunt. They don't come up to the top of the hill where we're usually sitting. And so I told Riley, let's do this long, crazy loop in the middle of the dark. We'll get there at 515 and I, let's get down almost like right above that creek, right on the property line. And as they come down, if they come down, we'll cut them off, we'll kill them. If they go up, we'll get up to the field and we'll we'll play the field game and it'll be fine. And I've never done that before. And so 5.15, I get over there and that was the game plan. And as I'm walking up on the hill, I realize it's very bright out. The moon, it's not a full moon, about three quarters, but it is very, very bright. 
and I get to thinking about, man, I mean, it rained the night before. It's going to be easier to sneak, but these birds are going to be able to see. And I just wasn't sure about it, so I started second-guessing. We got up to the point where I had to make that decision. I said, Riley, what do you think? Maybe we should just go straight down over the ravine. Instead of going clear out and around and doing this crazy circle and trying to get down two flats and making all this noise, why don't we just cut straight to where we want to go? And we knew that that was directly between two previous roost spots. Um, and, and so we, we decided that that was going to be our game plan. So we started walking. We get into the woods, out of the field, and start dropping down over toward where we want to be. And I'm 10 yards in, and I start second-guessing myself again. I'm like, you know what? Why don't we just sit? Let's just sit, and when we hear the first gobble, then we can maybe make a play. But right now, we don't have a clue where these birds are roosted. They don't roost in the same tree every single time. You didn't get a call. Let's just sit down. So we, we picked a big tree, thank goodness. I'm sitting there, and basically we are facing, there's a ravine down in front of us, and then up on the other side is where we had that bird roosted the first night. Over to our right was a spot where we had had birds roosted before, um, you know, they'd been in that area, but I was kind of anticipating everything coming from in front of us across that ravine. Riley's to my left kind of facing that. Sun kind of starts to crack just a little bit, and I hear a gobble directly to my right, 60 yards, no joke. And I told Riley, do not move. Like up to that point, I've been trying to get microphones ready and all of that stuff. And I can't lay eyes on this bird. There's enough thick stuff between us and him, but I know that he is super close. And he gobbles. He probably gobbled for the next 20 minutes nonstop, maybe to take a breath like for 30 seconds, and then he'd gobble again. During that time, I was able to get Riley. He was facing completely the wrong way. I had to get him on the other side of the tree. Fortunately, I picked a big tree for us to put our backs against, and he was able to use that tree as cover. I mean, he rustled the leaves, and that bird double gobbled. <laughs> I mean, if we could have sneezed, and that bird would have gobbled. He was so hot on the roost. I started calling to him. Now, here's a lesson for you guys and a lesson for me. I've never been that close to a bird on the roost uh, and been calling to it like that, I don't think. And a lot of guys, that's what they do. I'm kind of new to the roost game, honestly. Um, my game has always been fields and decoys. Well, we didn't even put out the decoys. Um, I didn't think that I wanted the birds if we were in the woods to come looking for us. So anyhow, I get behind the camera. I start doing some tree calls. He gobble, 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 goes crazy. I do a fly down cackle. I learned how to do that on a pot call. I'm running all this on a JT pot call, not a sponsor, but I tell you what, you guys know that I don't have any sponsors, right? I always say that, but I, yeah, but JT, if, they, if I had a sponsor, JT's would be a great one because I love their custom slate pot calls. Well worth the money. Sounds so good. Birds started losing his mind. Started rustling the leaves a little bit, and then I just couldn't shut up. I just kept on calling a little bit, and he'd gobble, and he'd call, and there was actually another bird that started going off down in that creek bottom. Uh, not as far to the left as what we thought, but clear down and over up on the other side, so I thought I might have a chance there. Long story short, finally I realized this bird is not flying off the roost because he is looking for the hen that should be coming by very quickly, and he's not seeing it. So I finally decided after about 15 minutes of kind of playing this back and forth and some pops and clucks and purrs and playing in the leaves and this bird goblin just to shut up. I shut up for probably less than four minutes and then all of a sudden I see him pitch off the limb and he goes away from us. My heart sinks a little bit, but I knew the second he hits the ground, I hit him with a couple pot calls. Told Riley, get your gun up. Get your gun up because he's going to pop over that horizon. He's going to be on us. So Riley gets his gun kind of pointed up just general direction. I said, no, Riley, all the way up. Like, get ready to, like, pull the trigger. I hit that call again, that bird, he goes off. I hit it one more time, and he hammers back, like, cuts me off. So I put the calls down. Two seconds later, I hear him gobble again, and he's cut the distance. He's headed this way. And I get the camera up and just about maybe 
uh, less than a minute, we see his little head kind of poking through, full strut. I tell Riley, if you got a shot, take it. He didn't have a shot initially. Riley made a good choice. And I said, wait, just let him come a little bit more. And he comes up. I had to mess with my camera to get it in focus. Long story short, I was able to get the shot on camera. The bird goes up in the full strut and then lifts his head. And I said, Riley, if you have the shot right now, take it. And Riley pulls the trigger, and this bird just drops. <laughs> and Riley takes off, runs. This bird didn't go anywhere. He just laid it down on his grandpa's land. First Tom that he's got, um, first bird that he's got in about four years. I helped him get a Jake about four or five years ago. Riley's now a senior in high school and got his first Tom. And I was just pumped, relieved, excited, uh, you name it. I was just just really excited for him to have that. Got it on film. That will be coming out soon. Today I had even more excitement. Went with my neighbor up on a property. Had some, uh, like a neighboring property. I got up in a blind. Long story short, birds, as soon as we got out of the blind, were calling clear across the valley up on this other hill. We made a play on them. Got within about 40 or 50 yards. And they were hung up on the barbed wire fence property line and could not get them to cross over. We could see them. But they were hung up. I was trying to do some purrs, nothing to bring them across that fence. So I left my my blind and I left my decoys up on the hill. And I decided, well, I'll go back and get those whenever I put my kids down for a nap. I go back to put, uh, after I put the kids down for a nap, I run over there and climb up on the hill. And I'm just about to the blind and those birds gobble in the same spot across the ravine up on the other side, (laughs) just like they did before. So I called my neighbor, John. I said, John, those birds are still up there. And he's like, all right. I was like, you want to meet me? He said, yeah. So I met him about 15 minutes later, and we went up on his backside of his property and got up close to that that neighboring property where they were. And we got up to a field that John has permission to hunt, and we put out a strutter decoy, and we put out a hen. Um, Thought that that might be a good combination. And it would have been had I not forgotten that my wife needed to be out of my house at 4 (laughs) o'clock. So at 2.46, I heard the first gobble of these birds in the afternoon. Uh, About 20 till, my wife says, you know that I need to leave here at 4, right? And the bird had just started gobbling about, he had went from 200 to about 150 on top of this ridge and was making his way toward the field. And I said, yep, I I remember that. (laughs) So I had in that moment to make a choice. Now, I tell you this for a reason, guys. The old me would have texted my wife, said, hey, we got birds coming. Can you please take the kids over to the neighbor's house? Could you do something? John even offered for his 15-year-old son to watch the kids and bring them there. But I knew that we had just put the kids down for a nap. I knew my wife was looking forward to this dinner, and I decided, you know what? I am just going to... I'm just going to leave and let John kill this bird if he can kill it. And I'm I'm going to go make my wife happy. I told John, I was like, you know, the season's still early, and I don't want to take my wife off, honestly. I don't want to stress her out. So I left him the GoPro. I left him the decoys. I left him my pot call, and I went home. Uh, it was so hard walking off that hill, but I was like, you know what? You won't regret this. And I went home, told my wife. She's like, did you have birds coming in? I was like, yeah. She goes, well, I could have done something with the kids. I was like, no, the kids are in bed. You go have fun. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'll just text. And John was texting me, and all of a sudden he's like, that bird's getting closer. And so I started texting him tips on things to do. John's killed turkeys before. He doesn't need my help necessarily, but it's giving him some different ideas on what to do. And finally, a strutter came into the decoys. He had to purr to get it to come in, and he blasted a real nice tom with a 10-inch beard. And I uh, wish I could have got it on film. My GoPro, I had it running for him, but it ran out of battery just as this bird was coming in. Didn't get it on film, but I tell you what, I was so just satisfied. Had I stayed, yeah, I would have been able to get some amazing footage of a turkey coming in and probably beating up a decoy. Maybe even got a double. This bird had some other toms behind him. Um, 
but my wife got to go and enjoy herself. I got to be there and edit my turkey video, and I got to hear John text me back and forth about what was going on and finally got the phone call that I was waiting on that he got it done. That feels way more rewarding, and I hope that I continue to make good choices like that, and I hope you do too. It's not worth it to stress out our wives to the point that they hate hunting, that they get frustrated, that we force you know, babysitting on neighbors. I'm, I'm done with that. I really want to be done with that, and I had a goal this season going in that I would be better, so uh, today was a win. All of that said, long intro. Those are the, the turkey stories. I had to tell you what's been going on, so I've basically been a part of three uh, hunts and... Well, actually, four hunts, three kills. And the Shedding Light Boys actually filmed uh, our little buddy Daniel killing a turkey there this past weekend. Got that all on film. That comes out actually probably before my video does, uh, maybe even tomorrow. So check that out on YouTube. Also want to say real quick, uh, thank you to those of you that participated in the Honestly contest. I do have some nuances, and one of them is to say honestly quite a bit. And in my last podcast, I said honestly about... 12 or 13 times. I lost count too. So many of you were so kind and said that you listened to it two or three times and you got sucked into the story every time. And I tell you, I'm just honored that uh, you said that. I'm, I'm grateful that my story captivated you in some way. And so anybody that entered the contest last week, you are getting both the Shedding Light Hunting Stories podcast sticker and the Shedding Light Outdoor sticker. I am going to be reaching out to you tomorrow to get your address and those will be in the mail shortly. All of that said, I'm about to get my guest on the line. This is probably the first time I've done this. Typically, I I always record after the fact, but I thought I'd just do it before to get those stories out. My guest today is a guy I've known for a little while. He used to work up on my wife's um, parents' farm. His name is John Bryant. He is a big-time hunter. This guy has killed some nice bucks. He's a turkey hunter, used to film his hunts, and now he is living his dream being a taxidermist. And so he's got some stories for us today that I am sure that you guys are absolutely going to love. John has uh, been everywhere, done a a lot of different things and uh, I already know some of these stories or at least a little bit about them and I'm excited to hear them again. So without further ado, now that we've heard all of my stories, let's get to John. Let's hear John's stories today. Here is John Bryant. Well, joining me from the big metropolis of Nova, Ohio is John Bryant. John, how are you, man? I'm doing real good. How are you, Travis? <laughs> doing good. I hope you don't mind me making making a little dig on Nova there. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. It's not very big. <laughs> my uh, my brother-in-law, well, you know Kirk. Kirk used to live just there outside of Nova. And, uh, well, outside, I don't know if there's even an inside of Nova. It's just kind of you drive <laughs> through it kind of thing there. So <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> How's things in Nova, man? Uh, real good. I actually, I live just probably about two miles from where Kirk lives, actually. Oh, do you? Uh, yep. cool. I didn't know that. Good. Yep. How is things in the well? First off, I'm getting ahead of myself. Tell me a little bit about what you do. I don't. I don't want to spoil it. Tell us a little bit about what you do and give us a little bit of your background there, John. Okay, so um, I do taxidermy work full time. I work for a, a small taxidermy shop right here in Nova. It's called Higher Taxidermy. Um, you can find them on Facebook. It's H Y E R Taxidermy. Um, I've been into taxidermy now for full time for about five years, I believe. Um, I started doing the taxidermy work. I started, I actually worked with Travis's father-in-law on their hog farm. When I got into taxidermy, I kind of, I would work at the farm during the day. And then when I would get off from the farm, I would come over here to the guy that owns the taxidermy shop is I've been friends with him for a really long time. And I've always kind of been interested in it. And uh, so I would go there in the evenings and just learn 
and just pick up on everything I could. And, you know, I, I would do that till 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And I did it every night for probably a year, year and a half until he offered me a full-time position. And I've been there ever since. Yeah, I remember that, John. I remember meeting you up there on the the, the old pig farm, and um, you know, I remember you being a big avid hunter. And also, I remember you and me and good old Uncle Kenny. We took a trip to uh, fin feather and fur one time. I remember that trip. That was a lot of fun. I do remember that. Yep. <laughs> uh, well, that's great, man. And uh, now I remember also another thing that you used to do is you used to film hunts. So tell me a little bit about the film and hunts and kind of that thing that that uh, you were a part of. Okay, I was a, a part of a group called Antler Outfitters, um, and they're still they're still going today. Uh, you can find them on Facebook too. But uh, it, it started out just you know a few small you know just a few a group a small group of guys that just enjoyed hunting and kind of wanted to take it to the next level thing. And uh, we started filming and we started just making little short videos, and one thing turned into another. We gained a few sponsors, and it. It just started growing, and uh, we actually made our way to the to the TV screen, even. And um, I just really enjoyed that. I, I put a lot of time into it. I took it very serious, and uh, I really, really enjoyed that. Yeah. Met a lot of great people doing that. Yeah, that's cool. I I remember that. I remember watching your guys' films, and that was kind of when Shedding Light was just kind of getting our start. I remember there was at one point I was kind of sending you some of my footage just because I knew that you had done it before. You had a professional camera, and you had kind of been down there. And so I I remember I actually went back and looked at some of those old messages where you and I were talking, and you were extremely helpful and just kind of giving me some helpful critiques, some good advice, some ways to kind of make – I remember the one time you asked, like, was that shot on a camera arm? I was like, no, I don't think so. You and I, you said you might want to invest in one of those because <laughs> it was so shaky, you know, in part. Yeah. So. yeah, I do some of our conversations actually, and I was always glad to help. Oh man, I do appreciate it. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you what, it's paid off over the years. You know, we've been doing this since 2015 and we've gotten a lot better in our footage. There's still that moment every once in a while things are a little shaky or the sound doesn't work the way it should or whatever. But, you know, just uh, guys doing the best that we can to capture the hunt. And it's a lot of fun. Now, I want to ask you, what kind of led you to, to take a step back from the filming aspect? You said you hadn't done that for a few years. Well, uh, I've been out of the filming now, I think, for four or five years, somewhere in that ballpark. And, um, what it was was I, when I was hunting at that time, I w- I just I took it as a job, you know. I, I I put everything I had into it, you know. Um, and my kids were were getting older, and they were really getting into the hunting. They they shared the same passion as me, and I just felt like that I was taken away from my kids. So I just I stepped back away from it for a little while, and um, just spent my time with my kids, and just really enjoyed the outdoors with them. Yeah, that's, that's really cool, and I think it's pretty honorable to, honestly, I just think, um, yeah, there I said honestly, John, I don't know if you listened to the last episode, but I said honestly, I said honestly about 13 times that last episode, so I'm going to try and, I'm going to try and take a step back. Um, for real, though, uh, <laughs> I think it's really cool, you know, just kind of, before I hit record with you, I got the recording a little bit of the opening, and I just, I'm learning a lot more about sometimes that filming and that drive is there. Like I want so badly to put out good stuff and I want so badly to get into the, but it requires extra time in the woods. Honestly, if there it is again, I just did honestly again, anyway, I'm going to keep moving on. I'll probably say it 30 more times, but it does. It really does. Um, 
you know, require that extra bit. And if you're not careful, it can become all consuming. You know, it can be everything you think about to try and get that on film and your family's at home saying, why isn't he back yet? You know, you know, a lot of people don't realize that part of, of that industry, you know, the people that are putting out the videos and the films just to gain that footage, the amount of time that you spend out there just to get those, you know, maybe a 10 minute hunt or might only be two minutes of, of actual footage of what's happening at the time, but it just, you put so much into it and it takes up so much time and effort that people, they, unless they do it, they really just don't know what it takes. Yeah. I would completely agree. Uh, it is everybody. It's a lot of times there'll be guys on Facebook says, Hey, I'm, I'm starting. I wanting to, I'm wanting to get into filming. What, what do I need to do? Give me some advice. And my first advice is don't <laughs> like, just, just go out and enjoy your hunt, man. Cause uh, I tell you, it's addicting. I love it. I really do. I mean, but there's always that this it's stressful. It's a lot of extra work. And I know there are times I've always said, if it costs me an animal, that I, I would stop doing it. That's not true. It has cost me animals and I continue to do it because I, I really do enjoy it. But yeah. it, it definitely probably not definitely it, 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 it costs extra time for me to be in the woods whenever I'm filming. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Well, I want to get into some stuff that I don't know about you. What I don't know, I mean, I met you um, on the pig farm and I knew that you were an avid hunter and that you had killed some big, big bucks and you'd been out turkey hunting and all that stuff. What I don't know is how you got started into hunting. So, John, I want to go back to the beginning with you. Tell me a little bit about how you got this passion for being in the outdoors. Okay, so the, the truth of it is, is I don't ever remember a time not hunting in my life i started so what here's here's a funny thing that you don't know travis is i grew up on a farm on the next road over from where your dad's farm is and i grew up in that block of woods behind his house and when i say i grew up there i literally grew up there i i spent every waking minute that i can remember that i had a free time uh i had a little air rifle even as far back as seven eight years old i i would just I would run the river bottoms and I was just, I was a little killing fool. I mean, I just loved to hunt and I, you know, if it was a season on it, I was hunting it, even with an air rifle back then. And um, my dad was never a real big hunter. Um, but when I was young, I remember he, he would take me hunting and he would do that just to get me into it. And, you know, and, I, and my passion just grew off that. As I got old enough that I was doing that more and more on my own, you know, and I started hunting with bigger calibers and things. Uh, he kind of just stepped back and I did my own thing and I just took off with it. I just, I learned more and more just from the time I spent out there and, and it just grew to what I am today, really. Mm. So just kind of that young, uh, <laughs> never leaves you, just kind of sticks with you type of thing. Yeah, that's exactly what it was too. I can relate to that. I definitely, I, I think for me, it's just, it started off and I, I always enjoyed gun season. Like every year that was like Christmas for me, you know, I mean, the night before I wouldn't get any sleep and it, but it would, it would be over in a week. Right. And then I'd be waiting for the next year to come back around, you know, and then I kind of got into muzzleloader season. And then finally I realized, Hey, there's this little thing with two little wheels on the end and you can pull it back and, and shoot an arrow and it allows you to hunt from end of September until february (laughs) and that that right there was the moment that it became probably more of an addiction for me (laughs) but archery has a way of that too with people for sure um so i got my first bow i i don't know how old i was i was very little i was probably seven i'm guessing 
um, I got it for Christmas one year and I couldn't even pull it back. And I owned that bow for probably a year, a year and a half before I could even draw that bow. And then once I got to where I could shoot it and proficient with it, I started bow hunting and I've, that's been my passion, you know, truly ever since is, is bow hunting. Um, there's just something about, okay, so I'm an opportunist too when it comes to hunting. I, I love to hunt with my guns and, and shotgun season comes in up here in Ohio. I love to be out there shotgun hunting, but, but the bow in my hand, like, like that's where it's at for me. I, I would much rather harvest the animal with my bow than I would a firearm for sure. Absolutely. I would completely agree with that. I, that's, that's usually my, I mean, I shot one with muzzleloader this year and that was, I was happy. I was satisfied. It was a good feeling, but the, yeah. adre the adrenaline kick definitely was not the same as, you know, last year and, and being able to pull back and, and hit one at 20 yards. You know, there's just something about that, that releasing the arrow and, you know, there's just, a, it's, it's, I don't know even how to describe it. It's beyond anything else you can really experience sometimes. That's true. That's very true. Well, John, I want to get into some of your uh, experiences, some of your stories. Um, you know, I mean, turkey season's right now, so we could talk turkeys, but maybe we go maybe deer first. I kind of want to hear some some of your best deer stories because I know that you've had a lot of different, you know, opportunities, different experiences through the filming, through those early years probably. So kind of give us some of your favorite, you know, deer hunting stories. Okay, so um, I could tell you about – a lot of missed opportunities, <laughs> um, especially when I was younger with a bow. It took me a long time with a bow before I was able to harvest. I was probably 16 years old before I harvested my first deer with a bow. Um, and the, that is probably my most memorable hunt. It, it was it was probably like an 80-inch six-point buck. It wasn't really nothing to it. But, but the whole hunt and the way that it happened, it, it just, you know, that hunt always will stick with me. Um, I remember I, I'd gotten off of school and I, I asked my mom to take me out to where I hunted. The property I hunted was probably five miles from where I lived. And I asked her to take me out there real quick. I only had a couple of hours before dark, you know, and, um, I was slipping back this fence rope, getting into the big timber where I like to hunt on this river bottom. And I seen some deer was already feeding out into a bean field. And I just kind of slipped my way down this creek bottom until I got within bow range and, uh, it was just meant to be one of them things, you know, you couldn't do no wrong. You know, I'm sure I probably wasn't as stealthy as I, I would like to think I was, but, <laughs> uh, it, it, but to harvest that deer and to get that feeling of adrenaline that I did that day, that, you know, as big of a hunter as I was up to that point, that just, that burned it inside of me. Like that's what I am today. Uh, that one little deer made, made everything for me. How did how did that play out? Were you like did you were you on the ground? Were you just doing a spot stock kind of thing? Well, I was yeah, I was just walking in. I was walking up this little creek bottom down a fence row up this creek bottom, and I just happened to see the deer. They were probably three hundred yards. There was a buck and two does out there. That little buck, and um, I just I basically just got down on my hands and knees and, and crawled to them up this creek bottom until I got within bow range, which is probably 30 to 35 yards at the time. And uh, I slipped my way up to the edge of the field and was able to pop up and they, they didn't know I was there. And I was fortunate enough to put the arrow where I wanted it. <laughs> Holy cow. That is a very, I think that's a pretty unique first deer. I mean, most, most people, it seems like it's in a, in a blind or in a tree stand or something along those lines or with a gun and you, you're able to slip into bow range. That is pretty incredible. 
I think there was a lot of luck on my side that day. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's always, there always seems to be some sort of luck involved, but yeah, that's, that's great. Wow. <laughs> so you get your first deer that way. Uh, you know, and I know since that time I've seen some of your pictures and, and you don't, you don't have to be modest. You've had some other success as far as the antler size and the, you know, the mature bucks and those type of things. Any of those stories kind of stand out to you, John? Yeah. So I have a couple of those stories I have. So my best buck today is, uh, and I call it my best buck. It's not actually my biggest buck, but to me, it's the most mature buck that I ever shot. And he's about 143 inch nine pointer. Um, it was on November 9th, I believe right here in Northeast Ohio. It was like 20 degrees that morning, snowing really hard, turned into sleet. So I, I got out real early in the morning. I got out there like an hour before daylight because I had a long walk. I, I walked probably eight, 900 yards back into where my tree stand was. And I was hunting the river bottom again at the time on the edge of a thicket. It was, the rut was peaking pretty good at the time. Um, I, I had a self climber with me. I took my climber up this tree that I had already hunted out of a couple other times. So I knew the area really well. <clears throat> and um, there was this deer that I, particular deer that I was hunting and I had seen him twice within the same week prior just wasn't able to uh get a crack at him and that morning i climbed up in my tree it, it i sat up there until it got daylight and just as it was breaking daylight I, I could hear a deer coming you know through the the frozen leaves and everything and it was working its way up the river bottom coming my direction and then i heard a couple grunts so i knew it was a buck and um i had a, a grunt call at the time that i i kind of called back to him i grunted a couple times at him did a couple little tending grunts and I then I could see the the sun was kind of trying to come out through all the snow and everything and I could I, I remember this branch over top of the edge of the river and it was just getting havoc you happened to this thing like this deer was had his antlers in this branch just raking it like crazy and I could tell that he was mad you know there was another deer in his area so I sat there for a little bit and watched him and he finally came to where I could see the whole deer and I knew that it was the same deer that I had been after and he, at this time, he was probably like 50 or 60 yards. So I made a couple more grunts to him. And he worked his way up the edge of that river, just kind of coming straight to me on, on this trail. And the trail led uh, about 19 or 20 yards probably from my tree. So I didn't make any more calls or anything. I just let him come. And he finally worked his way over to me. And he got behind a, there's a, I remember this ash tree that was sitting down in this river bottom because it's probably the biggest ash tree I ever seen. And he got behind that tree and stopped perfectly. And I was able to get drawn on him. And as soon as he stepped out, I let my arrow go. And I, I knew it was a good hit by the way he reacted. And he took off and he ran back the direction he came. And I was hunting by myself that morning. And I remember I was just the adrenaline. You just, every hunt, I could tell you every, how I, the adrenaline affected me, you know. And I, I was just numb with adrenaline. And it was funny because in Ohio, you can shoot another deer on the same day. And I, I sat up there, I was gonna make myself wait an hour and it was killing me to wait to go get this deer. I bet. And um, I had doe tags in my pocket as well. So I wanted to harvest the doe too. Well, I seen some does coming down off the side of the hill, right down into uh, the area where, my, where I was hunting. They come down there, so I, I got another arrow, I grabbed my bow, I put another arrow on and I was so nervous that I was hunting with a drop away rest on my bow and 
And if you know, a drop-away rest has a little string that it attaches that when you draw your bow back, it brings the rest up into place. Well, my broadhead, I raked it right across that string and busted that string <laughs> when I was trying to shoot one of these does, <laughs> and I just couldn't make it happen. But but that buck, that buck hunt, uh, so long story short, I went, I climbed down the tree, I waited my hour, I climbed down the tree and I worked my way over there and he was piled up just out of my view. And, and I remember just walking up to that deer, you know, the way the sun was hitting on him, he was already snow covered, you know, it was just beautiful. And uh, to, in my opinion, my best deer to date. That's awesome. John, quick question for you. This is for guys that are listening that maybe, you know, they're newer to deer hunting. Why did you choose to wait an hour, even though you felt like you made a good shot? So no matter what you think or how good a shot you think you did, you never actually know what happened, you know, internally on that animal with your hit. Uh, you, you don't want to pursue an animal prematurely because if the animal has not expired yet and you jumped the deer per se, out of his bed, uh, a deer will go lay down and and expire. And if you you pursue him too soon and you jump him up out of his bed, there's a lot of different factors that could happen. You, the deer's blood could clot up, and you he won't bleed for a while, or it'll be real spotty blood and just makes him really hard to track. Um, your chances of finding the animal after you jump him up are they drop probably in half. So if you just wait and give them time to expire it chances are you're going to find him in his first bed that's that's really solid advice i think that was something i struggled with i still do you know there's been times where you know you shoot a deer and this goes back to my my deer drive days back in those days you'd shoot a deer and you really i mean especially if you were on drive you'd shoot a deer you would immediately begin the track job like seconds after you shot just to see if you had it and you know and and that still kind of gets me today i'll shoot and feel like i have uh case in point was this past year i shot what i thought was a really good shot a heart shot and i took my time getting out of the tree but i did definitely did not wait an hour i probably waited maybe 30 minutes and sure enough i got close to a bedding area and i bumped this this deer out of his his bedding right you know that's just i i wanted to kind of dwell on that for a second because that is really good advice for people that are listening just wait that time if he's dead now he'll be dead in an hour (laughs) that's that's exactly right you hear so many horror stories of of this happening to people and it's just like patience you got so much patience you know year after year and day after day you spend up in your tree stand you know you just want to make sure that you you pursue that patience even after the shot has happened and just make sure you do it the right way Oh, that is a very cool story. I'm glad you got that buck. That's that's really incredible. Yeah, that was pretty awesome for me. So, uh, I guess I'll, I'll, I want to hear some turkey stories. It is turkey season, and uh, at least for most people, unless you're in the, one of those southern boys, maybe you're you're already moving on to bass fishing or something. But <laughs> I want to hear some turkey stories. But was there any other deer stories up your sleeve that you wanted to share? Um, I have another one that that's a pretty cool story. Um, so this was probably four or five years ago. My son, he's, he was 15 or 16 at the time, probably. Um, and he was, it was his first year of really hunting hard by himself. And, uh, this is the time when I had just quit filming with Antler Outfitters. So, and I was spending a lot of time with my son, but I was still really nervous about him being up in the tree by himself, you know? And, uh, so I had this this particular property that I hunted that had a power line that ran through it. 
and they had two big thick bedding areas on either side of the power line. So we went in early. Um, my son spent a lot of time prior to season, you know, we put a lot of time in doing our homework, you know, learning the deer, what's in the area, you know, how they're moving. Um, so I let him pick his stand out, stand location out. We hung a stand before season come in and I, I purposely hung my stand on the other side of the power line, but at the same time I could see across the power line and see him up in his tree. Now, I know people are going to think, you know, why would you hunt so close? But in this particular instance, it was a really cool situation because it would, that power line split two separate blocks of woods, and it was like we were hunting two separate areas. It just really worked out well. Mm -hmm. So, so this, uh, it was November 9th again. Uh, my son, it was probably an hour after daylight. We had watched several deer come through already. Um, nothing that we were, we were kind of picky at the time. Um, and I seen a deer coming up a hill and I couldn't quite, I knew it was a buck, but I couldn't quite tell what it was. And it was when they come up top of the hill and I could see it was, it was a pretty significant buck. It was 146 or 47 inches, I believe real heavy, uh, solid eight pointer. And I could tell it was a mature deer and he, I grunted at him a couple of times and he came straight to me, just like on a rope, like you hear people say. So he turned broadside, I, I, I took my shot, and he runs straight across the power line right to my son. <laughs> and he stopped on the other side of the power line, which I could see he was a little bit wobbly and getting ready to go down, but I heard another shot. My son shot the same deer. So um, it picked off again. It went about 40 yards and piled up. Um, so I got on the phone, and I called my son, you know, and uh, we kind of shared our stories, how it just happened and what happened. And he, I said, well, let's just wait a few minutes we'll get him make sure he has plenty of time to expire we both heard him go down and uh, i said i'll climb down and i'll come over to you and we'll go to the deer and he's like well i want to hunt because that's your deer you you had already shot him i don't want it i was like well you put an arrow in him you finished him off if you want the deer you know you shot it <laughs> and uh he absolutely wanted no part of putting his tag on that deer so i did, we elected the way he wanted to hunt longer so i stayed up in that tree stand watching him and about an hour after that had happened, another group of deer had come from the other side where he was at and come directly underneath of him. And he, he had shot his biggest deer, which was another big, it was about a 140-inch nine-pointer. And he had shot it out of the same stand the same morning. And oh, man. it was just, yeah, it's one of the mornings, you know, picture perfect. You know, everything went right. It was just really, really a great experience for him and I both. You can't get much better than that. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Uh, yeah, I've met your son. I mean, he I think he shares your passion for the outdoors. He loves being out there, loves being able to hunt, and I, it's just neat to be able to pass that along, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. He absolutely does share my same passion, that's for sure. Well, John, as we record this, it is just a couple of days into May, so I don't. I think it's still fitting for us to hear some turkey stories. So, can you give us a couple of your top turkey tales? I, I gave a couple little uh, ones where I was involved, uh, but I want to hear your your best turkey stories. What do you got for us? So, my most memorable turkey story is probably the first turkey I ever killed. And okay, so just to let you know, I didn't start turkey hunting until. Like I, so I've been turkey hunting for 19 or 20 years now, but I was older before I ever went on my first turkey hunt. And I had a friend of mine that every year he would, you know, ask me, do you kill any turkeys this year? And, and I told him, no, I don't ever turkey hunt. And he would always invite me to go. He hunted down in Southern Ohio, down in your neck of the woods. Oh, okay. And uh, 
he invited me every year to go down with him and, and I never would do it, never would do it. And then one year I, I decided I was going to go. So, um, my wife was pregnant with my son at the time and she was due very soon. And we, uh, we went on this hunt, you know, knowing that she could be going to labor any time. We went down there on this hunt, uh, waiting for a phone call that we was going to have to cut it short and come back early, and it never happened. So we, I went with my, my buddy. We got it. We walked to the top of this ridge, and we had called all morning. We had heard turkeys off in the distance, and it, nothing really was happening. And he said he wanted to hunt, go on the other side of the road and hunt over on another ridge and see if he could make something happen over there. And I told him that I just kind of wanted to sit where we were at because we knew there were birds in the area. So I stayed up in that area and I just worked that same ridge. And about an hour after he left me, I had I had struck a gobble. There was a couple of birds that gobbled. They couldn't have been more than 100 yards from where I was at, just over the hill. So I sat down, hurried up, set my decoys and stuff out, made a couple calls. And these two turkeys just basically run right over top of me. They, they run right out to my decoys. Um, one of the turkeys was flogging my decoy as I shot him. <laughs> So it, it was just a, a really great hunt the way it worked. You know, I, I was down there with a friend of mine. We had hunted all morning, and then we had kind of split up, and then I ended up shooting the bird on my very first hunt. So I've been addicted pretty hard ever since. <laughs> you can't beat that. I mean, yeah. whenever they read the script and it works like that, you first off, you start, you start thinking, oh, this is easy. <laughs> and then you realize, oh, wait a second, maybe it's not on your next hunt. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I've been pretty fortunate in, 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 in Ohio for turkeys. Um, I've, I, so I started hunting that year and I killed, you can, you can harvest two turkeys in Ohio and I killed two turkeys that year. And then every year since up until just a few years ago, I've always harvested my two, two birds. So I've been pretty fortunate. Oh yeah. Wow. That's great. That's really good success. So what, I guess, you know, for guys right now that are kind of striking out or struggling, which, you know, this year I've heard some guys that are, are having some challenges. What, you know, what's your go, do you have a go-to tactic that you use or what are maybe a couple of your, your strategies, John, that you use to get on these birds? So the best thing I can, best advice I could give anybody is to do your homework. Know, do a lot of scouting, know the birds patterns um, and kind of just work off of that. I, I like to find out the roosting areas. I like to know pretty much what trees they're going to be in. I, I try to roost birds, you know, in the evenings, anytime I can. And then I try to get in close to the roosting areas in the morning, and and you all, that's always where you start. You know, um, if it happens right off the bat, great. If it don't, at least you know their routine and what direction they're going to be heading, and you can always keep making your moves on them. You know, anybody that likes to run a gun um, and get set up ahead of the birds and and try to work them that way, and that's that's always been the most productive thing for me. Yeah, yeah, that's. That's what I'm learning how to do. A lot of ours has always been kind of be off in the distance and call them in, you know, mm -hmm. to a field or to a location where we know where they're going to be. But um, before you and I got on, I actually this past past week, I was able to help a boy, you know, get one off the roost. And that's I've been close to the roost before, but never in that scenario where, you know, we were just able to do enough calling to get him to come in the way that we wanted to. And it, it just, he read the script. It worked perfectly. I called a little too much to him while he was still on the tree. That was one, one thing I need to get better at, but it's, it's so hard to not do that. Cause you, I love hearing a turkey gobble. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I first started turkey hunting, that was 
that was my nemesis. The turkey call was my nemesis because I would ruin more turkey hunts than anything because I, I loved to call and I would always overcall. And I learned, you know, over years of hunting that less is more. Everybody says that, but it, there's a lot of truth in that. Well, John, I think uh, we got time maybe for one more story. So if you could kind of dig deep, think for a second, what would be the story that you would leave us with? It could be deer or turkey. So I'll let, it'll be your, uh, you know, uh, guest choice. What what would you go with here? Well, I'll give you a story uh, that happened at your dad's farm. How's that? Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah, I'd love to hear that. Um, one of the guys that I filmed with for Antler Outfitters, Mark Boffman, he used to do a lot of hunting with me, and uh, we hunted. We had, I had done a lot of homework, like I said, a lot of pre-scouting, and I knew where the birds were roosting at back there, but they were roosted on the neighboring property that I, I did not have permission to hunt on. So we went back in one morning, and we got set up, and we tried to call the birds off the roost, which we were still probably 60 or 70 yards from them, but they there was hens in between of us, and they, the hens pulled it. You know, just like you hear everybody say they get hemmed up. That's exactly how it happened. And they went they went away. Um, so we sat there, and we were in a blind, and uh, we called. We would sit quiet for a while, and we called a little bit more. And then off in the distance on the neighboring property, almost out of hearing, I heard a, a turkey answering my calls. So I would call a little bit more, and, and I heard him gobble again, and, and I was just getting really fired up, and then I would go quiet. And that bird covered a lot of ground in a little bit of time. He came in probably 40 yards before my buddy ended up shooting him. Um, we filmed this hunt too, so we had a lot of cool footage of this particular hunt. But so that turkey came in and he shot him. Um, we went out and got the bird and we, we did a little interview, you know, on the camera and everything. We, we brought the bird back in the turkey blind with us because there were so many other birds in the area we decided we were going to sit and wait a little bit longer. And this was the last day of season. I forgot to mention that. And I still had another tag yet. So we sat there and a couple of hours later, it was getting close to noon. At the time, you could only hunt until noon. Um, probably about 20 minutes till noon, I had another bird that would answer my call. And it was just like that. It came from the same direction. It was just as far, almost out of hearing range. And uh, I started calling and I got that bird fired up where he was cutting my calls. And then I just went quiet and that bird did the same thing. He, he come in really hard, really fast. And I ended up shooting that bird at about 10 yards right over top of our decoys. But the funny thing was when I pulled the trigger, we were watching the, the time on our watches because it got down. It was two minutes until noon <laughs> that I ended up pulling the trigger on this bird. And the whole time we just was not sure if it was going to happen or not, you know. <laughs> But it worked out. We ended up shooting a double that day, and uh, we had a lot of great footage of it, and it was just a really fun, memorable hunt. Mm, in the nick of time. That's really sweet. Just in the nick of time. That's right. Oh, man. That's <laughs> really cool. Well, I want to. I kind of want to wrap things up a little bit with talking about your, your taxidermy. And I tell you, I, what I've seen on Facebook with you know, your higher taxidermy you guys do some really good work so talk talk to me a little bit about just um you know what what kind of led you to taxidermy what's kind of been your passion with that maybe as as taxidermy taught you anything about deer or any of the animals that you're interacting with tell us a little bit about what you know you kind of your overall experience with that yeah so taxidermy um i've always had a, a big interest in it but i never really dove into it or took the initiative to find out enough about it to know whether it was something I wanted to do or not. 
until, like I said, a friend of mine owned, owned a higher taxidermy and he had been in business for quite a while and he was a very reputable taxidermist. And um, I would go over there and just, I'd sit and just BS with him for a while and I would watch him work while we were just chatting it up, you know, telling our war stories and whatnot. And uh, he would always invite me to come out and, and just start helping him. And, and I wouldn't do it and I wouldn't do it. And finally, one day I just did. And every day since I've been doing taxidermy work. And I, I think any outdoorsman is always kind of going to have an interest in it, you know, or, or at least think they do. <laughs> um, at least to me, it did. I you know, just being in the outdoors and, and around the wildlife so much. Um, I've just always had an interest in it. And he opened the door up to me, you know, and I was fortunate enough to, to now be doing this full time. But he has taught me a lot doing it. He's a, a very, very good taxidermist. Um, he has taught me a lot. And I'm to the point where I've been competing in state competitions and things at that level and doing fairly well in it. Um, gaining a pretty good reputation myself around here and uh, yeah. even through taxidermy I've met so many great people um, a lot of people in the outdoor industry we do some work for some pretty big names in the industry um, so you get to meet people that way um, all the new people I meet through the state associations and things it's just it's a it's a great thing and I love doing that that's really cool. I'd encourage, uh, you know, anybody that's close to Northern Ohio or that even in Ohio, you know, it's not that far of a trip up there. It's about three hours from where I live, you know, check out higher taxidermy, you know, it's on Facebook and uh, let John know, you know, send him a message or whatever. And um, John, I, I, I like seeing the pictures and I, I have the kind of the same thing. I agree with you. I think something about being an outdoorsman, you know, I follow a couple of different taxidermists that I'm friends with and just kind of seeing their work. It's, I think that's what's neat about it is that, um, there's an art. I mean, it's, it is art. It is, uh, it's not just taking a dead animal and putting it on the wall as some think it's, it's, it's an art. And there are some obviously that are way better than others at it. You know, it takes a lot of time and a lot of skill and a lot of, you know, there's so many nuances to making sure that everything looks realistic and, you know, you do a good job on it. So I think that's, I think that's pretty cool what you do there. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I agree with you. I think it is an art. Um, there are some people that just have it naturally. Some people struggle with it. Um, but doing uh, some of these competitions and things, and I, I get to meet a lot of other great taxidermists, and I go to seminars and one-on-one -on -one workshops with these people, and I, I try to take as much away from all of them as I can. And just to learn the anatomy of some of the animals, it, it makes you a better woodsman for sure because you get a way better understanding of the animals that you're pursuing through this. It's, it's pretty neat. The whole experience is pretty neat. Oh, that's cool, man. Well, John, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed kind of hearing a little bit of your backstory, and I know that you probably have a plethora of stories that you could probably continue to tell, and so I may have to have you back on sometime, but I, I do appreciate your time this evening coming on and, and sharing that with us. Absolutely. I had fun. Thank you very much. Yeah, me too, man. I look forward to seeing you soon, and I uh, hope to chat with you soon down the road. All right, man? Sure. I appreciate it. Thanks, Travis. Yep. Talk to you later. Yep. Have a good one now. You too. Bye. Bye. Really enjoyed hearing uh, John's story and kind of his backstory, how he got into hunting. And 
Uh, also just kind of picked up on something I thought was pretty incredible. The fact that John gave up filming, you know, that's something that I really enjoy doing, like I said before. And and he was, I mean, I, I followed Antler Outfitters back, uh, you know, whenever I first met John. They were putting out some really good videos. I think they still do. And, and John gave that up. You know, this group was gaining popularity. It was on uh, different TV shows and it was also on apps. And, and John gave that up for his family. And I just think about, you know, the sacrifice that he made to do that. You know, giving up something that you enjoy so that something else will benefit. And I, I think about that concept of sacrifice. Throughout the Bible, you're going to read a lot about sacrifices. And it's kind of confusing. There's a lot of stuff like, why why are they killing these animals? And it seems very cultish. And it's not something that we typically think about today. But I, I think right from the get-go, God wanted to paint a picture. You know, whenever Adam and Eve, they sin in the garden... It says God uh, clothed them in animal skin. Now, you and I know this. How do you get animal skin? You have to kill an animal. And right then and there, God has to show that there is going to be a sacrifice for our sins. And then the law is instituted, and basically the law existed to kind of show people that they really needed God. In fact, they couldn't keep God's law. They messed up, so they'd have to sacrifice their firstborn animal, the best that they had, the one without any blemish. They would have to sacrifice that in order you know, for God to cover their sins for a time, but then they would mess up again, and they just had to continually repeat this process for hundreds and hundreds of years, this, this thing of sacrifice, and it could never get rid of sins. In fact, nothing we do can ever get rid of that problem. So God takes care of that problem because of Jesus. Jesus is God's perfect, blemishless son, his spotless son. Uh, The Bible describes him as a lamb. And so, you know, honestly, we've got nothing really to sacrifice to God. Uh, God has done all the sacrificing. He's done it all for us. And because he's done that, the question though is, because he's done that, does that cause any change in the way that you live? Do you sacrifice things, not to gain God's favor, but do you sacrifice things because God has done that for you? He's given up everything for you, so what have you given up for him? You know, I hear guys say all the time, well, you know, I just don't have the time. I got my job, and I don't have time for church. I don't have time to, you know, read the Bible. I just don't have time. And I just think about, you know, myself, I, I'm in that boat sometimes. There's times that I, I just, I'm not willing to give up anything because I like my hunting. I like my free time. I like doing what I want to do. And I don't think about sacrificing for God because he sacrificed for me. And once again, it's not to gain his favor. It's because I just want to say thank you. You know, I want to say thank you for what he's done. So, and I want to be more like him. I want to be selfless and not so selfish. You know, today, you know, I was faced with this choice. Am I going to you know, go after this bird, stay here with my my neighbor, or am I going to leave? And it was so hard. You know, I really wanted to stay uh, and experience that. I could have got a great turkey film, no doubt about it. But I realized that I would be asking my wife to sacrifice a lot in that 20 minutes where I had to be home. Uh, She was going to have to wake my kids up, get them to a babysitter. I'm going to have to rely on some unsuspected babysitter and make their life stressful. And I used to do that all the time for myself. And I chose... I chose to do, I think, what was the right thing, and that is just to leave. Um, it's not worth it sometimes. Uh, and I just got to think in a big picture, in a big sense, and I got to ask you, what are you sacrificing for those that you care about around you? Um, 
maybe you're sacrificing time, maybe you're sacrificing, you know, energy and effort and things that you're putting into things. But, you know, we're called, I think if you're a Christian, you're called to be like Christ, and Christ gave the ultimate sacrifice. And we're called to take up our cross daily and, and to follow him. That That's not always easy. It shouldn't be easy, in fact. It's a challenge, but it's worth it. <laughs> it's worth it at the end of the day to sit back and realize, okay, I did nothing to earn God's favor today, but I did do something to say, God, you're awesome. Thank you. And I hope that this sacrifice is, is pleasing to you and, and um, makes you smile. Guys, that's stuff I want you to think about. What are you doing to sacrifice for others? What are you doing to sacrifice for God? Um, because he sacrificed everything for you. Guys, hope you come back next week for another episode. I really appreciate you listening. And until then, I hope that you will remember to shed the light.